Welcome, Matt. The um, now we were expecting a guy called Mez McConnell to come. Yep. Um, you're not Mez. I'm not much nicer. Yeah, yeah. I heard him referred to as an angry little um, Irishman the other day. Yeah. I think I quoted that from you, actually, <laughs> said that. Um, tell us, why hasn't Mez been able to come to Australia? <clears throat> so Mez, if, if you know of Mez's story, he is... Um, uh, so Mez and I co-founded a ministry called 20 Schemes, and so we've been working together for the last uh, six and a half years or so. But Mez uh, grew up on the streets of Ireland, went, uh, uh, was uh, homeless, ended up on, in the care system, gets caught up in drugs and uh, drug dealing, ends up... Uh, robbing a bank, uh, going to Spain, getting deported for drug offences, uh, attempted murder in a nightclub, goes to prison. Australia government doesn't like that too much. And so, um, so yeah, even though God has saved him and his uh, convictions are wiped clean in the eyes of the Lord, um, it's, it's much harder sometimes for him to be able to travel. So we applied for a visa. He's been here before. We didn't think we were going to have any trouble getting him in again. Um, but alas, the... Uh, the visa approval didn't come in in time. So last Friday, had to make that kind of that, that call to you. Oh, Mess isn't going to make it. Well, I'll, I'm still coming. <laughs> we got the better looking one of the yeah. two anyway, so we certainly appreciate it. I just thought I was coming just to hang out, but I've been teaching yeah. all week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that, it, it, yeah. appreciate you giving up all your no time worries. and stuff for us. Um, so you mentioned this thing called 20 Schemes. Yep. We're very sceptical about people with schemes. <laughs> You've got 20 of them. Tell us about... <laughs> Why 20 Schemes? So 20 Schemes is a church planting ministry in the Schemes of Scotland. Schemes are um, <clears throat> the community. So the, the, the cultural equivalent here may be housing commissions. But if you think of a housing commission of maybe 1,000 people, uh, a scheme has 20,000 people living on it. Um, it's, a, it's a city within a city. It's, it, for many parts, it's got its own school system, its own culture. Um, uh, but all the issues that you'd have in an area of poverty, drugs, alcohol, mental health issues, serious level of addictions, crime. Um, but what you won't find on a scheme in Scotland is a gospel-preaching church. You got, um, so just <clears throat> in a scheme in Glasgow, on the west coast of Scotland, life expectancy for a male is... 50 years old, so, you know, you already passed it. If, if, <laughs> and so, I'm actually only 30, but, okay. you know, I look. So, in the scheme in Scotland, it's life expensive. So, there, there are young men, young girls being born in the scheme in Scotland today who may only live into their 50s, and they'll never meet a Christian. They'll never meet a Christian in their life um, unless a gospel-preaching church is planted in the schemes of Scotland. And so our vision, our goal, is to plant 20 churches in the next 10 years, hence the name, um, 20 schemes. And so, uh, yeah, see the Lord does with that work. That's an awesome goal, awesome prayer. And yeah, just to um, have that on your heart, to, to be a part of that is awesome. Now, uh, about you, uh, you, your accent's a little bit hard to pick. Where are you from? <laughs> so um, grew up in Aberdeen, Scotland, um, but born in Norway, Stavanger, Norway, uh, my mum's from England, dad's from Dublin, grew up in Scotland, now live and pastor a church in Kentucky. That makes perfect sense. Yes. Perfect sense. I don't know a lot about Kentucky, except for they make the best fried chicken around. Yeah, it's not that great. Oh, mate, I visit them regularly. I, um, I, like, I, like, I like the bourbon, but the, the chicken, not so much. I don't know. I wasn't going to admit that. <laughs> Tell us, you're pastoring a church there. Yep. What's that like? Um, because you're involved in a ministry to poorer communities. Mm -hmm. what, what's your local church like? Yeah, so planted a church in a community just south of a city called Louisville, Kentucky. Um, our 
community is predominantly Roman Catholic. It's a, a very much a, a Catholic community. It is what I would call blue-collar, factory laborers, kind of hard-working class, poor um, kind of community. And so most of the members of my church uh, would have uh, come out of Catholicism and uh, wouldn't necessarily have gone to uni, would have uh, barely made it, would be uh, tradies over here, I think you'd call them, um, and uh, would have little background in church, um, but have uh, flourishing and growing and coming to faith, and so that's the, the church we planted. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I'm a testimony to God-loving tradies, so yeah. His grace does continue Amen. that far. Yeah, um, We're going through a series at the start of this year. We're start working through the book of John, the Gospel of John. We're uh, looking at why John believes. We're asking the question, why I believe. Uh, if I ask you that question, why do you believe in Jesus? Uh, how would you answer that? Yeah, so when I think of my own uh, childhood, didn't know any Christians, nobody in my family were believers. Uh, my mum started going to a church when I was 14. Uh, she, her best friend was, uh, went to this little Baptist church. Uh, nobody in my school, uh, high school of a thousand students, were believers, were Christians. I was surrounded by unbelievers, atheists, agnostics, um, secular uh, worldview. Uh, grew up in many ways with, with a bitterness in my own heart because of some experience I had in my own life. And yet, when I was 18, I came to faith. And, and the only way it can explain it is God pursued me. There's no other explanation. So why do I believe? Because he came to me. He opened my eyes to see him. Um, and so when, when I heard the gospel, it came alive to me um, in a very real way. And so I, cannot, no, I can't deny that the Lord is real because he, he pursued me. I, wasn't, I was running away from him. And he chased after me. Looking forward to hearing you later on expand on that because yeah. it sounds like uh, that's a powerful message uh, that you're going to share with us this morning. Things that we can be praying for you yourself as well as 20 Schemes. What, what, what are some of the things that we can pray for you? Yeah, so 20 Schemes, it's a, uh, it's a difficult ministry. It can feel very um, disheartening at times. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's slow to, kind of, to see fruit in, these, in many of the communities we're planting in. It's, it's quite slow. It's very costly. And so... Just pray for us to remain, remain faithful, remain encouraged, remain strong in the work. Uh, pray for others to come and join us um, uh, to, in the work that we're doing. Uh, just pray for Mez and I as we uh, try to, to shoulder um, uh, both the, the, the work in Scotland, but then also um, some of the other things we've got going on. It's, uh, um, you know, just, it's, uh, it's a lot on our plate, and so just give us wisdom in how to um, balance well and build margins in our life that we're not very good at doing. And so just grant us wisdom in, in that. We're certainly thankful that you and Mez have had on your heart to do this, not just for Scotland, but uh, you know, coming to Australia and many other countries just to encourage us to think about how we uh, reach all areas of our community with the love of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, let me pray for you now. Dear Father, we do thank you for your amazing love. Uh, everything we've been singing about this morning, that your grace uh, poured out on us through the cross and we thank you that it is a message not just for a particular people type, but for all people in all stages of life and all circumstances. Uh, and Lord, we just thank you for, for guys like Matt and for Mez and, and for all those church planters in Scotland particularly, just uh, wanting to show that love to all people, particularly in hard areas where there's so many things that are pulling them away. Lord, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that uh, through the 
the ministry of those churches in those hard areas that you would see that we would see lives changed that you would be transforming people to be true disciples of you that they would be so excited that those churches will explode lord in those uh, housing schemes Lord, we thank you for Matt too in his ministry in Kentucky. We thank you for, uh, yeah, his family and willingness to travel the world, come to places like us uh, to, to, yeah, challenge us about reaching out with the love of Jesus Christ, but also to challenge us even here this morning uh, with us realising how deep that love is. Lord, I pray for us as a church community here that we would uh, always be looking at encouraging each other and building each other up in Jesus yeah. Christ. We thank you for the love and the unity we share here. But Lord, please use us as a church to reach our community with that amazing message. It would be awesome to see um, this area on the south side just uh, to know you, to love you and to be transformed by you. Yeah. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before uh, we jump off the stage um we are already talking about maybe getting you guys back for next year we'll give mez a bit more the heads up about getting his visa sorted out uh hope he doesn't do anything bad in the next 12 months (laughs) as well um but yeah it's something we're working on next year so we're really looking forward to seeing that happen as well it will happen it will thanks (laughs) we're going to have our bible reading now and it's from Luke 15. Yeah, I'll be reading from um, Luke 15 from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. Um, it's found on page 849 if you have one of the church Bibles or you can follow along on the screen behind me. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Would you uh, pray with me? We ask the Lord to help us understand this, his word. Father, Lord, just we ask that you would speak to us now, for this is your word. We do not come to gather in this place to listen to any one person or, or the voice of a man, but we come to listen to the voice of a holy God. So Holy Spirit, minister to us now. Speak your truth into our hearts that we might come to know you and love you and to truly rejoice in your grace and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I certainly enjoyed um, uh, your hospitality this week and, and getting to know Ross and Ben and, um, and the church here. And uh, it's been good to, to be at the conference and, and just think about some of these things uh, this week. Church Now Places workshop that we did here on Tuesday and so forth. You know, as we go around and think about doing ministry to the poor, do ministry to those who are living in what we call hard places, places in our communities where life is just hard. It's harder to get a job, harder to get a decent house, harder to get a good education for your children. We're speaking to people who are living in real brokenness. And so for 20 schemes in Scotland, we're planting in communities where we can only describe where it just feels broken. Life is broken. Let me introduce you to a a man named Jack. Jack is a, he looks old, he looks, when you would meet him, he looks like he's in his 70s, he's actually only in his late 30s. He looks haggard in, in such has been the, the, the hardships of his own life. Jack grew up in poverty, his parents were absent, he was raised by his grandmother. He started drinking as a boy, then he turned from drink to drugs. His grandmother kicks him out of his home. He ends up sleeping on his mate's couch. His days consisted of, of sleeping and then chasing after the next fix before too long as his habit becomes so strong that the benefits he receives from the government isn't adequate to buy enough drugs for him. And so he begins dealing drugs and selling drugs as a way for him to feed his own habit. He begins stealing in order to deal, in order to sell. He's living for the next high but one night for Jack, a drug deal goes bad in the stairwell of his apartment building. He was attacked, his head beaten by a golf club. He's left for dead. When Jack finally wakes up in the hospital, he's so badly mentally damaged that he's just discarded by anybody that knows him, anybody that once even cared about him. He becomes homeless, living on the streets of Edinburgh. He ends up sleeping on the doorstep of one of our church plants in the scheme in Edinburgh. 
So much so that each day, Christians that are belonging to this church plant team, they begin to befriend him, get to know his name, get to know his story. And they listen to him. And they seem to genuinely care for him. But Jack, he's cynical. He's suspicious. Are they going to use him and abuse him like everybody else in his life? But they invite him to come with him on a church weekend away. And so off he goes. So free food, free place to sleep. This small group, this small church group, they begin to treat him like he's just one of theirs. Like he belongs with them. Who are these people, thought Jack, that they would even bother with me? It was on that retreat that Jack hears the gospel, that he was a sinner. He wasn't just a victim, that he was a rebel against a holy God, a God who created him in his own image. But the good news was that this holy God sent a rescuer to come and rescue him, to set him free from the slavery of sin that he had become caught up in, that only had the effect of destroying him and all that he thought to be true. He came to know that he needed a redeemer. He needed a savior. He put his trust in Jesus. The storms and the chaos that was Jack's life gives way to an extraordinary, unusual peace. For Jack, he'd finally made it home. He'd finally made it into a family who cared for him. An extraordinary love for this addict, still mentally ill, still looking rough, still speaking rough, but something had changed from that point on in his life. He'd begun to walk with Jesus. He'd come home. It's funny, every time I see Jack now, he looks younger every time I see him. It's like the physical effects of grace on his life. It is so telling. You know, in this story, in Luke 15, it's a familiar story. But as we read it, each time you come in to read this story, it speaks to us again because, because it's familiar to us as well. This, in many ways, is our own story. That we who are prone to wonder, we who are prone to question God, we who are prone to doubt His goodness and His efficiency for us, we are, we're tempted to just to walk away. To give it all up. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe that's maybe it's describing you today. Jesus is speaking. Chapters 15, verse 1 and 2, it tells us who Jesus is speaking to. He's at a dinner party. Often Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is teaching at a dinner party. And here he's at a dinner party. And it says he's with tax collectors and sinners. It's kind of describing all the rough people in town. That's the scheme folk. That's the, uh, that's the folk that he's having dinner with, the, the sinners, those who are, who are really living it up, who, are, who are, are known as being quite scandalous in society. And then it says the Pharisees walk in, the religious people walk in, and they start muttering, it says in verse 2. Who does Jesus think he is sitting and eating with people like Jack? Who does Jesus think he is sitting at the table with people like them? And so Jesus tells this story. You see, he's speaking to these two different groups of people, the sinners and the Pharisees. They're both sinners, but the sinners just know they're sinners. 
He's talking to the sinners and the Pharisees. These two different groups of people. Some are pursuing money and greed and sex and pleasure, and they're chasing after the next fix in life. And the other are pursuing righteousness, self-righteousness, pompousness, sense of being puffed up in their own pride and arrogance. One, uh, one group is rebellious, the other is religious. But they both disappoint their father. They both reject the father. So Jesus is speaking. That's why he gives us this, this parable. And the question for us this morning is to consider which son are you most like? You see, you'll either not care what people think of you, or you'll be so hyper-concerned about what people are thinking of you. You're in one of these two camps. You're, you're prone to one of these two ways of thinking. But no matter what, if you follow down either one of those paths, then you will end up alienated from God. You need to come back to the Father. And that's the essence of this story. You've got two groups, the Pharisees and the sinners the religious and the rebellious, and yet they're both equally alienated from the Father. And Jesus is calling them to come home, to come home to the Father. It's the point he's making. Look, when I flew to Australia, there are many ways I, I could have come to Australia. There's many ways I could have got here. There are many different routes I could have chosen to come. Every way was going to be long, no matter which way I chose to come here, but there were different options I had, different airlines I could have chosen to get here. But what Jesus is telling us, there's, there's many ways for us to, to walk away from God, but there's only one way home. There's only one way home, and that way is to repent and to believe, to trust in Him. It's the way to come home. But Jesus isn't telling us that you know, if you if you're just gone a bit of stray, then you just need to shape up your life. You just need to clean up the mess you've created. You just need to get your act together. He isn't telling us that. Praise God, he isn't. He's saying you just need to come home. You need to turn, repent, put your trust again in the Father. So let's see what he's telling us. There's two brothers in this story. So let's look at the first one, the younger brother. And so we have this picture here of what appears to be quite a wealthy family, a, a father who seems quite well-to-do. He's got two boys. He he's, uh, seems to be, from what we can tell, a loving father, a, a caring father. He doesn't seem to be in any ways uh, abusive towards his boys. He's, he's given them work to do. He's given them a good home to live in. He seems to love them. He's a hard-working man. We know he's quite wealthy because he's got servant. He's got hired helpers. His sons are part of running the family business. But you seem to get the, the picture. These two boys, they don't really get along very well with each other. They seem so utterly different from one another. You see, the oldest son, he's the rule follower. He's that, that type A, driven, business-minded kind of guy. He knew what needed to be done, and he just got up in the morning, and he got the work done. He didn't have much time for fun along the way. But the youngest brother... Well, he's just completely different. He was the rule breaker. He's the, the non-conformist. He just, he just liked a good time. He enjoyed hanging out with his friends. He wasn't a fan of, of work. He just put up with having to work. You know, he, he worked so he could live. He didn't live to work. 
Two completely different boys from the same father. Those of us out there who are parents, you've got multiple kids. Isn't it amazing how we can have children with completely different personalities from each other? I mean, they come from the, the same parents. Look at my own daughters. I've got two girls, and they are so completely different from each other. My oldest daughter, is, she uh, often deals with social anxiety issues, don't like being in a, in a new environment. My youngest one is, is the social butterfly. She'll be anywhere. So yesterday they went on a, a school field trip. I, I texted my wife. She said, how did it go? She said, it was terrible. I said, why? I said, because within the first hour, Alice had a complete meltdown, complete freaking out. And yet, but Bethany wanted to keep going and staying. And, and so, uh, so Tracy had to leave with, with Alice and, and Bethany had to stay with the, the teachers. And so it's amazing. I was just two kids from the same gene pool and yet completely different. And the same with these, these two brothers, completely different from each other. So this, this youngest brother, the younger boy, he, he decides it's time to leave the family business. He wants to go out on his own. He's had enough of being stuck in the tired schedule of all work and no play. He wants to, to give it all up, to walk away, to cash it in, to cash in his father's inheritance. It just felt right to him. Maybe he hated the idea of leaving his dad. He, he knew it caused shame to come upon his family. But at this point in his life, he just didn't care. All he cared about was what felt good. So he gets up the courage, he goes to his father, he demands his inheritance. You know what he's saying to his dad in this moment? He's going up to his dad and he's saying, you are dead to me. Give me my inheritance now. And he wants nothing more to do with him. So we see the son walking away. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. You see what this young man is doing to his father? There's so much more than just going up to his dad and saying, Hey, dad, can you give me a loan? No, he's doing so much more than that. He's going up to his dad and he's saying, Give me my inheritance. You are dead to me. He is relinquishing his title of son. No longer your son. He doesn't want a relationship with, with his father. He's finished. Now, I doubt that the dad saw it coming. I doubt that expect this is the last thing his dad was expecting. Yeah, we got, I got, again, two daughters, and just, you know, I just have to, like, my, my, one, particularly my youngest daughter, Bethany, she's just, just to look at me and just to, to pout in her own way, and just, I just break down, you know? You know, you have to think, are kids obsessed with making slime here? Is that a thing here? This is the most disgusting thing. I just don't get it. And so my daughter is just obsessed with making slime, and it is awful. I find like mold-infested slime that's made six weeks ago all over her bedroom. And it's like, and she invites friends together, and they make slime together. I said, no, just no more slime. I'm just, no, I'm done with it. And, and yet the next day she gets out and she makes slime, and I just give in to her. And, you know, and uh, that's just the heart of a father. And, and here this is, no doubt the dad in this story doesn't expect it. This is his boy. This is his son saying, you're dead to me, Dad. I want nothing more to do with you. He's losing his child. Not only that, but in Jewish culture, this would have been utterly shameful. This boy is bringing shame on his family. In Jewish custom and culture, you didn't treat your father this way. You show your father honor and respect. The whole village would have heard about it. 
the whole village would have been scandalized by what this boy was doing to his dad. But this young punk just goes up to his dad and he rips his family apart and he doesn't even care. Why would he do it? Why would Jesus tell us a story of this boy? Why, why would he do it? Why would he give up so much? Why would he trade it all in? Well, why do we do it? Because we fall for the lie of Satan that freedom comes from money or possessions. That freedom comes from, from being popular. That freedom comes from just having a good time. That, that somehow that is freedom. That that is what it means to be free, to, to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. So this boy in, in his father's house, he doesn't feel free. He feels trapped. He feels like he's living in a dead-end town, working a dead-end job. And he just wants to be free, free from it all. Isn't that how sometimes we treat God? And there are moments when we think, God, I'm just, I'm just going to do things my own way. I'm just going to do things the way I want to do it. I've had enough of you telling me how to live my life. I've had enough of living by your rules. I'm done with this. I want to do things my way and get what I want when I want it. So he abandons his father. With a sackload of cash, he heads to the big city, a spring in his step. And he's laughing. He's laughing all the way there, dreaming big dreams of the good time he's about to have. But look, verse 13 doesn't last long. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he, set, all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Doesn't last long. As soon as he gets it, he wastes it. The Bible used that word squandered. It means to be utterly reckless with his father's inheritance. He blows it. He wastes it. Every last penny. And what's it come to? Nothing. He's got, he's got nothing to show for it. He's utterly reckless. And again, that's the lie of Satan. Just think about today. Just, just live for today. Just live for this moment. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what will come. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the effects of your reckless behavior. Just live for the now. And so he's wasted it all. But he doesn't get away with it for long. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Disaster strikes. Famine hits the land. Now he can't even rely on his newfound friends. The first thing they abandon in time of crisis is him, this freeloader who's again, living on their couch trying to eat from their table. You know, he, was, he was popular when he had money, but now he's got nothing. He squandered it all. And now famine hits, and he's desperate, utterly desperate. Times are tough. And he begs for a job. He'll do anything. He needs a job just to survive. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. That moment is Jesus telling this story to these sinners and Pharisees. In that moment, when Jesus says that part, there would have been an audible gasp. The idea of a Jewish boy working in a field of pigs. The idea of a Jewish boy eating the food that pigs eat. 
There is there's no greater picture of, of falling to complete rock bottom. But that's where he's got to. It's a shocking image. He's got nothing left. He has no money. He has no family. He has no place to live. He has no faith. He has no friends. How many of us know people just like him? People we love and we care for. Perhaps you've been there yourself. People who, have, who are chasing after the, the idea of freedom. And yet it leads to complete destruction in their own life. People who maybe once walked with us in, in church, who, but have, who have gone away from us, chasing after an idea of what they believe to be happiness, and yet it's just spiraling in this death spiral. Maybe that's where, where you are, chasing after the dream or your idea of a dream, whether that be a, a relationship or a drug or popularity or a day at the races, chasing after the dream of freedom only to end up a slave. That's life for most people in the schemes, chasing after a dream, chasing after the next high, the next fix, but you know, it is idolatry which leads to slavery. That's what all sin is. Sin ultimately leads to slavery. It will destroy us and it will enslave us. There is no freedom there. Sin always lies. It holds out the promise to us of happiness or pleasure or freedom. But it never comes through. Sin always lies. Because sin always delivers Slavery, never freedom. Sin leads us away from God and into utter despair. So what now for this boy? He's hopeless. He's lost everything. What can he do? Perhaps he just needs to wait to kind of straighten himself up. Perhaps he just needs to clean himself up, to, to wait it out, to hope for a better day, to just get his act together. But the truth is, no matter how hard he tries, he'll never dig himself out of the hole he's in. He doesn't need to straighten up. He needs to go home. It's about coming home. And he knows it. That's what Jesus is telling us. That's why he's telling us this story to the sinners and the Pharisees. You need to come home. You need to fall on your knees and cry for mercy and let Jesus clean you up. You need to come home. And so the boy, he has, he has an awakening. Verse, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like your own hired servant. So he got up and he went to his father. You know, something I experience often in life, experience even this week, is, is that feeling of homesickness. You ever have that ex experience when you're away from home and you just feel homesick? You know, I, I grew up in Scotland. I spent most of my life in Scotland. Now I'm living in Kentucky. I live in perpetual homesickness. You know, it's just, you just put food on the table and it's like nothing feels familiar to me. 
Nothing feels comfortable or at ease to me. You know, I grew up in, you know, in Scotland. Even what we eat is different. Our culture is different. The way we relate to each other is different. So there's this constant sense of, I'm not home. I don't, I don't belong here. A sense of I'm longing to be where I feel comfortable, where I feel at home. It's a horrible feeling. And this boy sitting in this pig farm in this field. has a longing for home. The text says he came to himself. Literally, it means he had this awakening moment. He came to his senses. He knew that there was only one way out of this mess, and this, this way was to go back to his father. He longed to be back with his father. He remembers the warmth of his house, the joy of the family gatherings, the tenderness of his father's embrace. All the things that he thought was so cheap and so disposable. All the things he traded in, now he longs for that. If only he could be back there again. Have you been awakened to your need for mercy? You see, there is a way out of our brokenness. No matter how far you have fallen, no matter how far you have run from God, Maybe here this morning, think, and you know in your own heart and your own mind the depths to which you have fallen. You may wonder, can God, can God accept anyone like me? No matter how far you have fallen, there's always a way home. But you've got to get up and you've got to turn around. You've got to walk away from the life you've chosen for yourself and walk back to the Father. And come back to the Father. This is a, a picture of repentance. I will go to my Father, he says. I will abandon all that I thought was good. And I will see the, the cheapness and the, 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 the death that exists there. And I'll go to my Father. I want to go home. And so he makes his way home. The young man, he, he makes his long, painful, no doubt humiliating journey home. He's thinking as he goes what will he do? How will I explain myself? Will he, what was, what was my father going to do? He must be so ashamed of me. But look what happens. Second part of verse 20. So he got up, he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. This, this old man, this Father, look, we, we don't expect this. This is a twist in the story. We don't expect the father to be a long way off. We expect the, the father, who his son has just brought shame on his family. We expect his father to be just going about his own business, having forgotten his son. But no, his father has been a long way off, a long way off from his own home. What is he doing? He's looking for his son. He's looking for his child. Can you imagine how heartbroken he was for his son? He watched his son walk away from him. He watched his son go out on his own down that dusty road. He never thought he would see his boy again. He was grief-stricken. He would do anything to see his child again. So he leaves his home and he abandons his house. He abandons his home to go and pursue his son. Maybe he's been doing that every day since his son left him, desperately waiting, searching, seeking his boy, wondering if he was alive. 
You see, he had real reason to fear that his son may be dead. Because there's a death sentence hanging over his son. Deuteronomy 21 verse 18 says this, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you will purge the evil from your midst. Now we don't read that in parenting handbooks today. Praise God for, for grace, a new covenant. You know. But here we, this is, he knows, his father knows he's brought shame on him. He's brought shame on his village. That the elders of the, of the village are, would, would kill him if he ever comes back. It's a death sentence hanging over his boy. And so when he sees his boy coming up the road, he runs to him. Literally, he runs to him. And this was an old man running frantically to get to his boy. And he embraces him and he kisses him. And he runs to him to get to him first because he wants to protect him. He wants him to come home, but he wants him to make it home. He ran to him because he wants to get between him and the stones of the angry villagers. He holds up his tunic and he says, and he embraces him. And it's a glorious picture of grace, but also restoration. This is my son. This is my boy. He grabs hold of him. He pulls him close. He hugs him out of a sense of relief and joy. Look, Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. As a father shows compassion upon his child, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we were dust. This is a picture of the love of God. The mercy of God. The death sentence that was once hanging over his child has been lifted because the father has restored him to his position as a son. This is how he loves us. This is the amazing grace of God for all of us. This son is pleading for mercy. He doesn't expect to be restored. He, he thinks he would be a, a slave in his father's house. But the, the father doesn't just extend mercy. The father extends grace to him. Which means he doesn't just pity him. And say, alright, you can come back and, and kind of work your way back to my good books. No, he ex extends immediate grace and he restores him. He gives him the best robe. A sign of honor. He puts a ring upon his finger. A sign that you belong to my family. He gives shoes upon his feet. Slaves don't wear shoes, but sons wear shoes in the father's house. He kills the fattened calf. A sign that the dead had come alive. A celebration of new life in the home. And that's how our father receives us home. 
God Himself comes to us. God Himself comes to you. He pursues you. He is looking for you. He defended us from our death sentence and He places His robe of righteousness upon us. He calls us His beloved child. And He invites us into His home. He lavishes His grace upon us. The Son couldn't work off His debt, but the Father could forgive it. This is the grace of our God. This is our greatest need. The grace of God. So come home. Come back to the Father. Receive His grace and His mercy. You cannot outrun His love. You cannot outsin His grace. But look, there's a second brother here as well. How does he respond? To the hearing of this music and this celebration going on, you'd think, well, hey, he'd be grateful. His, his brother is home. But verse 25, meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called out one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, a loving brother's got to be thinking, well, hey, the, my brother's home. Praise God, let's rejoice, let's celebrate. But no, this is an utterly conceited, entitled, self-righteous little man. Here he comes and he gets angry. He refuses to go in. He refuses to go into his father's house. All is going well for his brother up to this, for this older brother up to this point. But then he hears music and he sees dancing. There's, you know, there's nothing that's going to really irritate and ignore, ignore, uh, annoy a, a legalistic, self-righteous person, the music and dancing. But he hears music and he sees dancing. And so he's not like, hey, let's go and join the party. No, he's filled with rage. It's like, stop it. Stop having fun. Stop celebrating. We're here to work, people. What are you doing? And then he finds out his, his brother is home. This is terrible. After all I've done for my dad. And he does this. He celebrates that this sinner has come home. You see, there are many people who are blinded by religion. There are many people blinded by their own sense of self-righteousness. The law, it will point out your sin. Religion will point out your sin, but it cannot change you. It will not change your heart. Only the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will change your heart. The power of the Holy Spirit, opening your eyes to who Jesus is. You see, those who receive grace cannot help but sing and rejoice and dance about it. But those who have puffed up with self-righteousness are not moved by grace. They're offended by it. He refuses to go in. So now we have this picture of the, the rebellious son in the father's house but the good son, outside the father's house, refusing to go in. Remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's having a dinner party with the sinners and with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are murmuring, they're asking, Jesus, how can you sit and eat with people like this? How can you throw a party for people like this? How can you sit and feast with people like this? And he looks at the Pharisees. He says, come and join us. Come and join us. These are the two brothers. The 
rebellious and the religious. Both are estranged from their father. Both need to come home. You see, the father loves the elder brother as much as he loved the younger. And he calls on him to come home, just as he instructed the younger son to come home. He pleads with him, come in and join the party. But the the older brother refuses. He insults his father. He pushes his father away. He's overcome with his own sense of entitlement, his own sense of self-importance. He cannot get over himself. He doesn't plead for grace. Rather, he points out all he's done. Look what I've done for you. Are we moved by the grace of God? Or are we moved by what you think you've done for God? What you've done for God doesn't amount to anything. Now, how you serve Him, the fact you're here this morning, the fact you're here this morning doesn't amount for anything. You're not here this morning to somehow appease God. God isn't impressed that you're here this morning. God isn't impressed by your good works or your your effort. God is looking for people who will come to Him as Father, who will come to Him and praise Him with love and care and devotion and who desire to be near to Him. Not simply just to do things, but to draw near to Him, to come in. He's saying to the elder brother, just come in. I don't care what you've done. Just come in. Maybe you need to say that to us this morning. Just come in. I don't care what you've done. For the good or the bad, just bow down. Just sit at the table. Just feast in the presence of the Father. Jesus kind of ends the story in a bit of a cliffhanger. We don't know if he goes in or not. But it's a picture of, of two sons. And he gives us the same question. Will you come home? Will you come home? The main character in this story is the loving father. And what Jesus is telling us is that we need to see God for who he is. He's our God, our father who loves us. Who's calling us to himself. We so desperately need him. So do you see God as a a loving father? The Father who receives you for who you are, not what you've done. Who, who blesses you and restores you. Who protects you from, from the impending wrath that will come against us. Many of us struggle to believe and to accept the idea of a loving Father. Some of you maybe in this room, you've, you've suffered at the hands of a Father. I have. First 10 years of my life, I grew up with a physically abusive Father who beat me and my brother and my mother. My mom, we grew up on the equivalent of a scheme. My mom, we had to run away from my dad and we moved into my grandparents' house and we lived in my grandparents' house to protect us from my father. And even then, a grandparents' house experienced more abuse from, 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 from neighbors in, in that scheme. And so for me, growing up from the age of 10 onwards, I wasn't, I wasn't running to a father, I was... I was bitter and angry. I couldn't trust anybody. And so even when I heard about this God, my mom started going to church when I was 14. My first response was to laugh at the idea of a God, a loving God. I was full of, of, of anger in my own heart. 
trying to protect myself and people around me. But my father came after me. He came to me when I was running away from him. And he opened my eyes when I didn't want a father. When my eyes were opened, I saw a truly loving God who will never abuse me, who will never abandon me, who will never hurt me. And even though I've been running from him, and even despite my anger and rebellion against him, he loves me. And all he says is come home. Come home. You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to weigh out your good works against your bad. Just come home. He is the most wonderful father. So much so that he would send his own son to leave his home to come after us while we were in our rebellion against him. You see, Hebrews 2 verse 11 says that we have a better elder brother. His name is Jesus. And he rejoices when we come home. He rejoices when we come home. We have a true elder brother who left his throne in order to come after us. He found us. He gave up everything for us so that we might come home with him. He would call us to himself. He would save us from our death sentence as he takes upon himself our shame, our punishment. He embraces us. He welcomes us. He places upon us his robe. He restores us into his family. So let's rejoice. Let's sing. Let's dance because of the grace of our Father. So church, are we going out seeking to rescue our lost brothers and sisters? Are we calling on them to come home? Or do we, like the elder brother, look in disgust and judgment on those who are living their lives in rebellion against the Holy God? You pray that God would give you the heart of mercy, not the heart that this older brother had. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're a Christian, but you've, in your own heart, you've come hardened to the grace of God. And you began flirting with the idea of, of walking away, walking into temptation, thinking it'd be so much easier if I just follow what I want to do rather than what He wants of me. It will not end well for you. Don't run from Him. Run towards Him. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian or not, you don't know if you've lived a certain way that God can be pleased with you, can accept you, you don't know even if a Father can love you. Listen to the Word of God this morning. Just come home. Just come to a Father who loves you more than you've ever been loved before. Experience a love that you've never experienced before. It's going to take you getting up from the, the pigsty of our lives. Abandoning. Abandoning what we've made of ourselves. And pursuing the Father. Which means getting on our knees and saying, Father, I love you. I want to come home. I want to be yours. I want to belong to you. You cannot outrun the love of God. You cannot outsin the grace of God. Come home to Him.
Let's pray. Father, Lord, you know each one of our hearts. You know the struggles that we're each facing in our own lives. So, Lord, let's speak into each one of us this morning. May this just not be a, a message that we hear and then we quickly forget. But, Father, may this be about your Holy Spirit ministering to each one of us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning that is thinking of running from you, then, Father, rest a hold of them now. Awaken them now. And Lord, if there be anybody in this room this morning who doesn't know you as their Father, who doesn't know what it is to be accepted by a holy God, open their eyes now that they might repent of their sins, put their trust in Jesus, receive your love and your grace. Lord, do the work that only you can do in this place. We ask for your glory. Amen.